Hello! How you doing? How's your father? Welcome to round two, episode number two, Everything Hurts podcast. And we're going to start off by apologizing because we are two very negligent people. What do you do when you start a podcast? You introduce yourself. You talk, to some extent at least, about what you're going to record. What did we do, Dan? We didn't do that. <laughs> no, we didn't do that. We just started talking like a couple of donkeys, um, which is normally how we interact because we work together, don't we? That's right. What's my favorite nickname for you? <laughs> I don't know if we're going to go there. Oh, okay. It's a bit, it's it's a like, bit, it's a bit racial. Ah, uh, yeah, but it's, it's, it's racial with love. It's racial. Is that a thing? I don't know. I don't you're know. my fa- you're my favorite collaborator. I can say that. Yeah, that that's good. That's yeah, good. that's good. I'm not your favorite collaborator. <laughs> tell, tell tell the nice people what it's like working with me. You know, it's uh, it's interesting. It's interesting. <laughs> this is yeah, what you don't understand about Dan is that you'll probably come to know him better. Dan's a very nice, well balanced, even handed man, which is how he can put up with the experience of working with me on a professional basis. Uh, he's extraordinarily patient. Uh, and he never seems to get upset, even when other people are upset with or at him. They're very laudable qualities. How did you develop such a sense of patience? I, I shared an office with you for about three years. I know. That was yeah. incredible. It was, wasn't it? Now, yeah. that was that was our doctorials. We are now both doctorials. We should put that in the title of the thing somewhere. We should, we should. Yeah, well, doing doing Doctor Quintana. Let's uh, give us give us ninety seconds on the the version of you that's the doctorial. Well, I'm a uh, postdoctoral research fellow at the uh, University of Oslo, and uh, one of the main things I'm investigating is looking at uh, oxytocin, intranasal oxytocin treatment. How can we improve it? At the moment, uh, when it comes to oxytocin, we do uh, a really bad job of actually uh, sticking it up the nose, and it's really just a case of pray and then spray. So we need to do much better. So a lot of my research is looking at ways in which we can actually improve intranasal administration um, of oxytocin uh, for the treatment of uh, the number of mental illnesses. And on top of that, I'm doing a lot of work looking at um, uh, cardiorespiratory factors in psychiatry, um, uh, looking at severe mental illness, brain imaging. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're very lucky to have uh, access to a big population of people with severe mental illness here in Oslo. So doing a lot of work with that, um, but keeping very, very busy. And what about you? Uh, so you, you would say you were a biological psychiatrist? Yes, working within biological psychiatry. Absolutely. I would say you were a biological psychiatrist. <laughs> Just not the psychiatrist part. Oh, well, you, you know, you don't have to be a thing uh, to work in a thing. That's as right. no one ever says because it's too nonspecific. What don't get the... me that confused. Look, that made perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah what did you say? You said, what about you, James? What, what about you, James? Well, presently, I'm presently I'm more sinus infection than man, yeah. which is uh, <laughs> why our first episode, I was listening back to our first episode thinking, I don't sound like that. Who's that? That someone else has crawled into my head and started using my voice. It sounds really weird. Um, it's it's better now. Um, I have uh, uh, 100,000 medicated cough drops. So what do I actually do? Um, I'm also a postdoctoral research fellow, or at least I was until my contract finished. 
a few days ago only. So I'm going to You're be, a free agent. Yeah, I'm go- going to be moving to something else entirely. Um, my work is harder to sum up. I've worked with a lot of biological psychology stuff. Um, I've done a lot of straight electrocardiography things. Uh, I've been in and out of most bits of the health sciences and life sciences at some point. Um, It's hard to stick all the research together into something coherent. It's much easier when you have a job because you just say that. So if you asked me (laughs) at the end of last week, it all would have been perfectly straightforward. What was that though? I'm looking at novel methods of conducting HIV research in the first place, which is something that not enough people do, in my opinion. Mm. We have Mm. autonomic data. How do we turn autonomic data into autonomic information? That's an ongoing research question and a good one. I also write for fun and sometimes for money. Um, I've got half a dozen other projects that knock around. Um, and because we had such fun during our PhDs and because Dan can't stomach the idea of having a single day where he doesn't hear my dulcet tones demanding stuff, <laughs> um, we thought we'd do a podcast because um, we have to talk gales of scientific crap most days anyway, don't we? Yeah, we, we may as well just press record because we're always uh, online talking shop. Very true. I mean, how many, how many papers have we done uh, this year? The, the two yeah, of us. two or three. I can't remember. Two or two three. Or three. Yeah. How many have we done in total? Four, four or five. Go. And we're young, yeah. young men. The, the, the power of youth <laughs> flows through us. Well, it, it flows through you. Um, it, <laughs> I'm slowly becoming a burned out husk, but you, you appear to be at least relatively useful. Uh, I think that the air yeah. in Oslo is keeping your skin young. There you go. We've introduced ourselves. What professional. Yeah, fantastic. Hmm. Fantastic. So uh, thanks to everyone that's uh, commented on the first episode. We've actually made it to episode two. It's very exciting. Mm. Uh, but yeah, we've had a lot of people who have um, given us some some great feedback and on on the first episode. So yeah. that's particularly civil. Uh, we we both appreciate that. Um, it's a, mm. it's, tre- it's tremendously uh, confronting to put your research out there, but it's even more so to put out your normative opinions not a lot of people do research and then stick it out into the world and many many more people go i've got an opinion and you should all pay attention to it what fun that'll be (laughs) and look at this we're having a second go those people seem to like it yeah oh it's very uh it's very it's very flattering isn't it are you flattered Mm. i'm very flattered you look flattered no you can't (laughs) see him but he looks flattered now, how are, here's, here's, here's a thing we can talk about just quickly. Where are we set up? We're on SoundCloud. We're on iTunes. Yes, we we're are. on Facebook. And we're on Twitter. Now, um, right. what do I think of Twitter? <laughs> tell us, tell uh, us, James. I think Twitter is the cancer of the soul, basically. Um, I would rather sand my fingers off and then use the stumps to beat myself to death than go on Twitter. I have a Twitter, but I use it simply to communicate the fact that I have no intention of using it any further and to stop people from stealing my identity. People love that. 
I, I actually posted uh, a screenshot of your Twitter bio, and uh, that almost that, that 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 got more interest than the actual episode itself. They're like, who who is this James Heather's, and why does he hate Twitter well, so much? Well, the, the answer to that, we're not going to podcast about why I hate Twitter. Um, I tolerate <laughs> other forms of uh, of social media and uh, contact with people. Um, <laughs> But anyway, we are, we are well, at least half of us are on Twitter. And uh, if you want to contact us, you can contact us on uh, at Hertz Podcast. Hertz with a Z. Mm, Hertz Podcast. At Hertz Podcast. Um, at Hertz Podcast. The Facebook as well is just everything Hertz Podcast. That will come up with any decent kind of search. How, where did we get the name? There's one last thing to talk about. That's right. Well, uh, to be honest, it was uh, inspired by one of your papers. Yeah, James. and then you didn't even tell me, and I thought, oh, he's come up with a good pun. That's reasonable. Oh, hang on, I did that two years ago. <laughs> didn't you recognise no, that? No, I didn't like, recognise that. That's a brilliant idea. I didn't recognise it. I thought that's that's quite um that's quite clever. Um, and I thought I thought you were you were. I mean, obviously, I think you're a clever man. I enjoy your company, but I didn't know that you were stealing jokes from me and then using them for our mutual projects. It's brilliant. Stunning. I'm a I'm a massive fan of the um of the pun in in the title. But what does it what of, does it uh, mean papers. though? This pun in context. What did you have in mind when you thought that would be a good name? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, both of us do a lot of work in heart rate variability or HRV. Now, that's a second thing. I actually had someone else. Um, <laughs> one thing we didn't do in the first episode is actually explain what HRV is or what it even stands for. Wow. We didn't even mention we that. We just skipped yeah, over so a lot of the basics, didn't we? We did. <laughs> we did. So, uh, heart rate variability. Uh, one of the ways that we measure heart rate variability is by looking at the frequency or the hertz of intermediate intervals. So, that's where the hertz pass comes from. As um, in the presence and- of cycles that are measured in cycles per second so hertz yes yeah that's correct um and then uh you know there's a lot of um a lot of issues within heart rate variability um and um there's a lot of stuff to cover mm. well, Hence, indi- yeah well, i think that they're also they're indicative of a lot of broader issues and hrv is an, an interesting kind of capture of a lot of reaches between different kinds of science and scientific practice. It's a little microcosm mm. world of all these other problems that everyone else has and how you can and can't make progress given the tools available, etc. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a funny it's a funny sort of field in that respect. It is. Yeah. And now we're both thusly cursed to talk about it until the end of time, like a some kind of <laughs> half sentient autonomic highlander. <laughs> oh, he's shaking his head at me you can't see that but he definitely is <laughs> now one final thing um, while we're making complete fools of ourselves here we have an email everythinghurtspodcast at gmail.com um, and as might be expected we're going to take all of these things and splatter all of the ones that aren't the actual one at any given point in time over all the other ones so it will form a network of things that are intercommunicating ah is that about enough of that can we actually talk about something useful yes let's um let's get uh, straight fantastic into it. you had something in mind what's on your mind yeah, so I thought uh, for episode two that we are going to talk about uh, nutrition in psychiatry. Bit of a mashup. Now, 
Yeah, it is a bit of a mashup there. Um, now, obviously, uh, the idea of nutrition and uh, and what to eat and what's good for us has uh, you know is, is hugely popular. Um, but it's also um, you know something that's becoming more and more interesting within psychiatry. And I thought you know this is the um, the, the nexus of, of something that uh, interests us both. And um, you know it, it is in a sense quite uh, quite a new field and. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of people have been taking a lot of supplementation and looking at different ways of doing diets in an effort to, uh, you know, both reduce severe mental illness, but um, also little things like just uh, improving day-to-day mood. So we thought we'd just have a look at that and uh, and look at the um, look at the state of the field. So when you know when you're looking at uh, food is obviously contributing to a big decline in physical health. But the question is, is it actually contributing to a decline in mental health? And we know that mental health is actually increasing uh, when, you, when you're looking at the statistics. But is this decline in food quality or the decline in diets actually um, contributing to mental health as well? Mm. Well, like, uh, like nutrition and psychiatry weren't hard enough. <laughs> what we need to start doing is uh what we need to start to do rather is to to sew them together um what's yeah. the well, i've when i think of the classic example of this um i think of the original discoveries where the ketogenic diet was used and this isn't so you could look good in a dark club for dark ladies this is to control seizures it's um it's a pretty serious area of research all up um, I can't remember when it started. It's a good few years old now. Um, I'm, by a good few years, I mean, it would be the twenties or the thirties when someone had this idea in the first place. And they thought it would be an amazing idea for treating epilepsy. Uh, and it turns out that it is for some people, um, especially for children who have intract- intractable seizures sometimes. Now, I have absolutely no further insight into why it works, but I'm not sure anyone else does either. Is this something you've come across? I think this is very interesting. Yeah, not particularly. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, a lot of stuff um, when it comes to epilepsy is quite comorbid with a lot of stuff, particularly with developmental disorders Mm. like autism. But um, as to whether the uh, ketogenic diet or any type of diet can actually improve you know, uh, I'm not really too sure, but you know, especially within the autism field, um, it, it's uh, a lot of a lot of parents and a lot of caregivers are actually trying a lot of different diets to try and improve um, any symptoms for their kids. And it's unfortunate because you have a lot of people who are taking advantage of uh, of these parents and caregivers, and you know, trying to push all types of diets, which quite simply aren't evidence based. You have all, all all this stuff out here, all the supplementation. Um, for and which probably doesn't even work. Mm, probably doesn't even work. That's a that's a, <laughs> a wonderful indictment of our friends in the, the nutrition and supplementation industry. But most of them deserve I, it. I, so who cares? But I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that um, a lot of the fallback is well, it might not work. But hey, it's not doing any mm, harm. Yeah, you know. And I, I just uh, if it. You know. No one who works in an evidence-based field is ever comfortable with the idea of, well, certainly we're not hurting anyone, so at least we, us specifically, my group of people are not hurting anyone, so I don't see any problem with us being able to promote it. Well, mm. yeah, look, obviously there's a, a, a problem with uh, 
how centrally honest you are yourself when you say something like that. I don't know if it works. You don't know if it works. As far as we can see, it seems to help some people for reasons that we can't quite put our finger on because they're fictitious. So, um, you know, free market, get it up, yeah. Not much of a, uh, not much of a recommendation in many respects. No. Um, the other problem is, of course, immediately on the back of that, is that it doesn't matter how honest you are and your friends are and the rest of the industry is, when there's desperate people who have money, uh, they will trade money for solutions that solve all their problems. Yeah. And you can find any group of people who are collected under the umbrella of some crazy diet on Facebook. Go out and try this, seriously. Find anyone who is in a magic unicorn, raw, paleo, inverted nipple, vegan, whatever, and scroll down through the group of true believers and it'll take you two or three weeks worth of posts until you find something really horrifying. Like, will the ketogenic diet work for me? I have stage two pancreatic cancer and my doctor put me on this and this and I don't like it and that's a real problem. And someone will go, oh, it sounds like you're not alkaline enough. And at that point in time, and uh, that happens every day, at that point uh, in time, yeah, it's not all about you and uh, the fact that your your therapy is complementary anymore. At that point in time, it's, you know, it's act actively dangerous. Uh, but there's not too much you can do about that. Uh, unless you, I mean, it's it obviously there's a certain point beyond which it's illegal to give medical advice. But the problem is, uh, how 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 is that prosecuted? Yeah. Over the internet in general, go to any yeah. uh, find a find a mind, body, and spirit fair somewhere and go there and see if you can get some medical advice out of the collected attendees. <laughs> Don't laugh like you've never looked at one of those things and gone hmm. This will be interesting. I wonder how high I can get my blood pressure today. <laughs> now there, there, there's a paper. Mm. <laughs> rock up to one of those fairs. Um, yeah, seriously, rock up to one of those fairs, have a list of symptoms yep. and see what different types of people or actually tell you this is what, you know, or, or what do they peddle to you? Yeah. And how much does it cost? Mm. How long does it take? Well, what what you'll probably find is that uh, people in general are very friendly and well-meaning, but also everything can solve everything else. So if you go in with a case of the yips or sciatica or you've got diabetic neuropathy or your earlobe's hanging off because you're halfway to being Van Gogh, um, you know, yep, this works. Why? Oh, because it's a dream catcher. It's got magic in it. The magic beans work. The alkaline water works the biodynamic eggs work it all it all works it all improves something because all of it's based on magic no literally <laughs> it's all literally based on magic in the traditional anthropological sense we do not have time to go into this now or i would be <laughs> railing to the skies i want to hear you talk more about specific nutrition psychiatry stuff because this is interesting to me this is now out of my wheelhouse and you're speaking to me as much as everyone else Okay, so one's probably the most tested supplement would be uh, be omega threes or omega yep. three uh, polyunsaturated fat fatty acids, um, both in supplement form, but uh, also in the form of fish or or fatty fish. Now, much like uh, a lot of other things in in psychiatry, um, the rationale behind this comes from 
let's measure levels in the blood. And if it's low on the blood, this must be causing the thing. So let's give them more to make the levels uh, increased and fix the disorder. Mm, so that's a, good, that's a good example of direct thinking. But, you know, thankfully, every yeah. other dietary intervention ever has, has always proved that direct thinking solves problems. So go on. This will be good. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of the rationale uh, comes behind that. And, um, you know, but, but since then, we've actually had quite a lot of trials looking at omega-3s and um, seeing does it actually improve symptoms. And to be honest, the, uh, the meta-analyses uh, aren't really convincing. Mm. You know, you've got a lot of studies that um, if, if you're not sure what a meta-analysis is, basically it's a way of statistically synthesizing uh, a body of research. So... Say you've got 10 studies and, um, you know, four of them say, yes, this intervention works and six of them say, no, it doesn't work. Um, is it simply a case of vote, ca uh, vote counting? Um, no, because what if um, those six studies had uh, 4,000 people each and the four studies had 40? You have to have some way of actually accounting for how big the sample sizes mm -hmm. are and uh, how much variance or how much difference you observe in the population. So that's why we have meta-analysis now we might do an episode later about meta-analysis because i'm a bit, a bit of a freak about meta-analysis uh, i enjoy can doing you them. qualify the word <laughs> freak in this case i like doing them mm. um I, pro I probably do them too much and um <laughs> are you preempting the criticism that you know is coming i i am <laughs> look it's a great way of synthesizing research um but um yeah We'll, we'll we'll leave this to, <laughs> we'll leave this to another episode. But anyway, a lot of these uh, a lot of these people have actually um, there there have been a lot of meta analyses actually synthesizing. You know what's the story of omega three, um, but particularly within mood disorders or within depression. Mm. And uh, you know what you find is um, generally when you combine all the data, uh, there is actually evidence to support there is a reduction of symptoms. But what's hidden away in these discussion sections is the um, these uh, horrifying looking plots which are suggestive of publication bias or p hacking mm. now what the what fun. <laughs> fancy that yeah now 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 what this really means is um either a there was a lot of studies which were conducted and which didn't actually get published because the results weren't positive or didn't look good um or within meta or within med the meta-analysis methods they actually um, hacked their way of getting a good result. Now, a really good way of doing this within meta-analysis is um, you actually have a choice about which uh, which studies or which articles you include. Um, say you say, I'm going to include studies between uh, people who are 18 and 40, um, and um, any study that looks at uh, omega-3s and depression will be included. You do your analysis. Now, say you really want this result. You really want the result to demonstrate that omega-3s actually help. You do your analysis, but you figure out that um, statistically speaking, you don't have a result. You take a closer look and you realize, hang on a minute, there's one study of people that were um, that were 28 years old that really, really messes up with my results. So let's just find some weird justification to only look at studies between people who are 18 and 25, include that. Voila, we have a significant result, which just sneaks under statistical significance. Now... Um, that's a huge problem for meta-analysis, which can actually be solved by pre-registering or actually posting online before you actually do it, your intentions of, um, of what you're, what you're analyzing. Mm -hmm. So you can't be 
accused of um of doing that later but anyway looking at all these plots you can actually see some pretty heavy evidence for publication bias within this field um so although we're actually getting these effects um there's most likely a lot of studies which were run which didn't actually find these significant effects so it's uh you know it's, it's an open question as to whether at least for depression uh, omega-3s actually work and then there's also a question of mechanism how, how what's happening That's you know obviously how... the first thing that i was going to ask you <laughs> uh unless the fish are some kind of magic fish uh and before they die they wriggle in an amusing way and it cheers you up you're gonna have to have something better than well we, we stuck it into the people and then some poorly defined mechanism involving inflammation and now they're all better Obviously, that's wildly inadequate. What have we got? Yeah. Let's start with depression is okay. a good example. Let's start with uh, omega-3s and depression specifically. How would that work? Well, uh, one of the, the main things that people uh, justify for the use of omega-3s is a reduction of inflammation. Uh, I mean, there's a school of thought that uh, depression or particularly almost every psychiatric illness is also an inflammatory disease. Mm. I mean, as, as we know, a lot, a lot of psychiatry and a lot of psychological illnesses actually happen below the neck. And there are a lot of things happening in the body, including systemic inflammation. So a lot of people suggest, well, okay, we're taking these omega-3s and the reason or the, 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 the mechanism by how they work is by a reduction of inflammation. And, and the inflammation is somehow involved in the psychiatric condition. That's right. That's and right. how 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 does this explanation sit with you as far as its relative sophistication and non-possessing of the characteristics of a donkey? <laughs> Look, if it, if it worked, it would make sense. I mean, there are ways you can test this. You can actually um, you can actually assess whether okay, if we do give these omega threes to these populations, are you actually uh, changing the cytokine profiles of, of people, of people. Mm -hmm. um, and then do the people who have a greater change of cytokine profiles actually um, improve in their symptoms? And uh, for memory, yeah, there is um, there is at least some link there. But um, the question is, how direct is this? Is this base? Is this is this a case of there being a direct okay reduction of inflammation and improvement of symptoms or is there something else going on and uh, like pretty much everything else in psychiatry i don't think it's that simple yeah uh that's why that's written at the end of literally everything that's written about psychiatry <laughs> ever can we have more money please and for god's sake don't think any of these explanations are causal i love the i love the clarity that you guys bring to things so <laughs> All right, without wanting to re return to all the systemic problems with that, what about the, 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 the broader environment of inflammation here? Depression's one example. What else is supposed to be involved in this pro-inflammatory environment stuff? Well, the, the other thing that people mention that uh, the way that, that these omega-3s may actually help is by changing the or by modulating neurotransmitter behavior. Um, you know, there is this sort of neurotransmitter hypothesis of, of depression. And the idea, I mean, this, this seems a little bit more magical and it's a little bit harder to test as well, that somehow these omega-3s, by increasing it, 
um, you're actually uh, improving or uh, returning your transmitted behavior behavior to, uh, to 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 a normal state. Mm. Now, yeah. So I think if you said that to someone who works in neurotransmitter biology, they would throw a brick at you. Yeah, I I, no, I agree because it, that that the infl- at least the inflammation story seems seems plausible. Mm. Yeah. But the the yeah you can almost yeah the new, the neurotransmitter story is just um, it's a bit yeah it's a bit of a long bow. Well, the vast majority of the time people talk about neurotransmitters in a context like that, they have a fictionalized idea of what they are and what they do. Mm. They're little causal chains of things that are all holding hands, and they don't have any of the properties of. Well, <laughs> everything neuroscience says they had in the last forty years. Um, yeah, I just I find things like that on on the face of it wildly implausible. There's yeah, just there's yeah. so many something something like that. There's there's so many layers of complication. There's, there's it's so hard to qualify the the. The, the links of this is a difficult concept to express the links between everything for that to actually work the causal links between everything that would have to happen and everything that is available to measure i don't think that exists mm. in context certainly mm. not in people now i think the other thing to consider as well is and and you're probably going to be better to answer this than me definitely is the difference between actual an actual supplement um a liquid or a tablet or a whole food now how do you think that'll actually impact upon this Mm, probably probably not a great deal um the primary problem that you've got uh with the supplementation versus whole food stuff most of the time is twofold one you end up with things that are in the wrong form so there's a, a a for instance, like calcium tablets, right? Everyone tells uh, every if you're like a woman over, I think it's forty-five or something. Yeah, and it's like, oh, you have to take calcium because bones, because whatever, right? Mm. Well, how many types of calcium are there? Well, there's lots. Yeah, the 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 one where you see the like like the the old lady in the kitchen with the, the huge bucket of them. Yeah, it's uh, it's calcium mm. citrate normally. But if it's a, is it, is it calcium in another form? Is it more bioavailable? Now, what are the other forms? Uh, the answer is, I can't remember. <laughs> no, hang on. Of course I can. But, there, but there's other calcium, forms. Calcium yeah. carbonate. Um, calcium carbonate and calcium citrate are the main ones. Hey, this is, this is the nice part about, uh, not, uh, <laughs> about not planning this stuff. Uh, what do you end up with in, in cheese? Uh, calcium lactate. Um, and in milk, it would be calcium phosphate it's been a while since i've looked at this stuff now do they have different bioavailabilities yes they do um and the second thing that rolls into that is cofactors do you have other things that can only be absorbed in the presence of x do you have something uh so uh lactose for instance uh lactose and protein from memory both direct have direct interactions with calcium absorption so Let's take those two principles and apply them to omega-3s. Now, fats can be cofactors for the absorption of other things, but I don't think there are any practical differences for either A, the form, or B, the absorption of omega-3s. 
Um, I favor food simply because the vast majority of the time they're nice. I like salmon. <laughs> you know, salmon's if great I can, if I can afford it. If you guys keep all oh, the, you would love, you would love Norway. Uh, why do I always do jokes about herring and you guys? It's salmon. It's salmon. I it's know. All, I know. It's, it's salmon. salmon. I'm, I'm repurposing my material for 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 being unpleasant to my Dutch collaborators. <laughs> obviously, that is definitely herring. And I, I I went to the Netherlands and ate herring. Um, I was thoroughly surprised by how genuinely fantastic it was. But it will not stop me doing jokes about it. Um, <laughs> no, you. If it's it's very difficult to believe that something that cheap can be that good. It really, it's, it's delicious. Absolutely fantastic. Um. Yeah, and I, I don't think there's any practical difference between uh, marine triglycerides from being in the actual marine animal versus being sucked out of it somehow. Now, I think um, Norway is actually a very interesting case study when it comes to just uh, naturalistic looking at omega-3s because you have a lot of people that are just saying, you know, if, if only we had some, you know, government... Uh, wide advertisements for, for for parents to give their kids omega-3s cod liver oil feed them a lot of salmon then we would go a long way to reducing autism or other developmental disorders and a lot of people <laughs> say this but here you have a, a case study in norway where um most people mm. um re- religiously since when they're little kids every day are fed cod liver oil mm. or tran as how they yep. call it here um, it, salmon is a is a normal, quite a normal part of the diet. It's it's one of the few foods here that's actually cheap, and um, it tastes bloody awesome. Mm. Um, but you have people who are getting a lot of um, just daily supplementation. Yet the rates of autism are the same as um, as the US, mm. the same as Australia, and the same as the UK, mm. where we're floating around sort of one in seventy, I think, or one one in sixty four is actually the the um the, the, the latest rate of autism in kids. So, you know, obviously giving kids um omega threes um isn't actually gonna change change things. Just um if you if you're looking at the population in Norway where almost every kid gets it. Yeah. And quite a lot of it too. Yeah. The yeah, um the tradition with cod liver oil from memory was to treat uh, was to treat vitamin deficiency. It had nothing to do with um, uh, getting your omega three fatty acids whatsoever. Yeah. It was the fact that you are uh, you you don't get uh you don't get vitamin A, you go blind. That's obviously bad. Um, and if you don't get vitamin D, you get rickets. So uh, liver in general is a pretty damn good source of both of those things, and uh, cod obviously was available. Very so I, I imagine that it's a, a hangover from that, but it's certainly there's a it's one of those things where yeah it's, it's almost certainly doing more good than harm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you you go to every every grocery store and you can see it in lemon flavor and orange flavor, mm. cod liver oil for kids. Mm. Uh, yeah, people are people are mad for it. You you go have breakfast at someone's house and they'll they'll put out the um the the cheeses and the spreads and the cod liver oil and after you're done everyone takes their cod liver wow, oil. Wow, like a herbal yeah, digestive, yeah. only a yes. thousand times more disgusting. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I think the other thing as well, when it comes to um, say you want to experimentally uh, test whole foods or a whole food whole food diet, mm. this is really hard. How do you actually? randomize people um to doing a specific diet and making sure they actually stick with it yeah uh in the last couple of years 
there have been a series of papers looking at the basic problems with doing uh, either research by dietary recall or the control of people who are assigned to diets in the first place. And both of them are just the methodological problems that people pretend aren't there are a huge problem for that as a research area. Psychologists, for um, all the criticism that we have of them, and make no mistake about it, I have a great deal of that. Um, I think there's been a much more concerted effort in psychology to deal with the systematic methodological problems with replication and publication bias and all the stuff that's coming to the surface now. Mm. Um, it's by no means the, the, the genetics people, uh, computational genetics stuff 10 years ago went through a, a very good purgative phase of being able to identify false positives and bad research. And they completely changed their practices and that's better than more or less any other field. And the attention that they paid oh. to... The attention they pay to, how does this need to be done so we know we're not fooling ourselves? Psychologists are doing better, and um, people in nutrition and sometimes in exercise science from a methodological perspective are doing bad. You know, there shouldn't be a paper published last year that says, you know, uh, food diaries just aren't accurate. Did you guys know food diaries aren't out? Here's 200 references to prove that your memory of what you ate over the last two weeks is not an adequate reflection. I don't remember what I ate. What, what, is, it, what is it today? It's Friday. I'm trying to think of what did you eat today, I'm James? I'm trying to think of what I ate on Tuesday. What did I eat today? Um, well, today's really easy because I've had nothing but uh, coffee, uh, medicated cough drops, um, raw pork ribs, not actually raw pork, just without anything on them. Uh, and lotus bean buns, which is the weirdest diet in history. But I woke up with a sinus full of blood, so I'm just eating whatever the hell's in front of me. <laughs> um, beyond beyond that, if you're eating three normal mixed meal diets, how, how often would you eat this stuff per week? You, I don't know, dude. You know, and keep a keep a diary. This is, I mean, obviously it's uh, it's it's invasive and difficult. And there's there's people who are not in the habit of going around taking notes on everything they do. And the, the accuracy gets called into question. We, 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 it, and it's something that you can't solve with adding more data points. You can't go, well, we'll power the study. We'll use the NHANES data. We'll get 100,000 people. So I think 100,000 crap data points can still be crap. Sometimes you can get a better approximation, but it very much depends on the nature of the measurements that you're making. If you get 10,000 measurements that are just too noisy, you just end up with a bigger pile of shit. <laughs> sometimes it works, sometimes it works fine. But look, yeah. it depends It depends on the area. Yeah. But you go like weak, uh, so weak, weak perceptual effects, if you're looking at low-level attention stuff in psychology, right? You take a people and the sponsors are all over the place. And when you start to get really, really big groups, you aggregate them together and very weak effects. And all well, that does actually change from here to here. How many people did you run? Many, 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 many. So it doesn't work. Yeah, well, we're pretty, I, I we're pretty wish sure I had it that works. luxury. It's not a robust effect, but it, there does appear to be a difference. Now, there's some there's mm. some areas where you just can't you can't do that. I yeah. think that's one of them. Um, yeah. 
So look, I'm I'm very happy that I don't have to work in it because the other thing is, is well, I mean, you you know the, the kind of stuff I like to do. Like, give me a small amount of data, I'm going to sit in a hole and come up with a computational idea for how to solve a problem. If every single time you want to do research, you have to get money to get research assistance to go out to collect data from dozens or hundreds or thousands of people, this research is difficult not to do but to organize. It's not difficult mm. to add up the columns. It's not difficult to say 2.3 serves of vegetables a day. It's difficult to have the infrastructure by which to do that in the first place. So what do you think about uh, you know, all these new services online where you can actually farm out uh, and people do your experiments for $3? Um, What's it called? Uh, Amazon uh, Mechanic? Yeah, yeah, MTurk. Yeah. Uh, MTurk is... A real double-edged sword. Um, the convenience is off the charts, obviously. That goes without saying. The idea that you can have one or 200 data points by tomorrow is fantastic. They formatted correctly. They come right through. Um, so your ability to iterate things is fantastic. Uh, it's not particularly expensive to run. Uh, I haven't done it. I, I would consider it in future. It's not particularly expensive to run. Uh, the problem is that you are paying people who have no incentive to give you the right answer. They're incentivized to complete the form. So what people have started doing is putting in a series of essentially lie controls into the questionnaires. And they work reasonably well, but you obviously you end up with a tension and the tension is between people who want to complete research results for the money and they will complete them with whatever the hell they feel like it reminds me of a guy in uh, high school who was doing a standardized maths test once uh and being a metalhead and having no interest in maths whatsoever he just put acdc 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 for most of it and then went to the end and then made up a few and ended up getting a credit <laughs> um which was very impressive but um look that um that's a that's an ongoing tension with the mturk thing because i mean when you have undergraduates you have exactly the same problem there's absolutely no guarantee that people who are doing the work are answering things accurately in the first instance yeah but there's a big difference between some some bloke on the other side of the world uh, doing the uh, doing the questionnaire versus a an undergraduate face to face and you're you handing them the questionnaire. Yeah, you know. Well, look, obviously, there's a, there's a, obviously there's a, if, you, if you mean just the the basic kind of a social helping slash coercion kind of level for to get accuracy. Yeah, like yeah, if you're actually seeing the person, you're more likely to, to obviously you know, to, obviously. To, and if they're yeah. invested in what you're doing, and they should be, you know, I don't believe in just getting people into an experiment, sticking them in the corner, hitting them with a stick and going, fill that out. I want people to be involved in research, understand what's happening. Um, even That's why you get the, mo the motivated uh, students that sign up in the first few weeks. Gold. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, the lovely part about running experiments over semester. You're right at the start and people who care desperately are the ones who turn up in the first place. And you know how I used to yeah. do this. I'd have a five-hour experiment that had five or six things that start to finish. You'd explain the whole thing and turn it basically into a miniature tutorial the entire time. I had students emailing me afterwards and running experiments like that, asking if they could come back and do other stuff for nothing. 
It's great. Yeah, look, people will. There are people who are curious, and there are people who will do it well. But if you're just going to, if you're going to turn it into a task that you complete for money, um, or credit, or anything else, and the incentive is not to be accurate, the incentive is to finish. Hmm. And yeah, it's just something that you have to take into account. And of hmm. course, there's lots of. But people I think there is something to be. Sorry, go on. I think there is something to be said though that once you hit a certain number of people, then those issues almost kind of fall to the wayside. You have some good life scales mm. in there. Kick out the people who are obviously doing it for the money or, or you know, for yep. some other reason. Um, if you're getting some, you know, was was it Anthony Greenwald and his implicit association test? Mm. I think it was, from from what I understand, the first sort of mega ex- online experiment. Yes. What kind of numbers was he getting? Um, I, I think it's still running. I mean, it's got to be like something stupid. Yeah, there was a paper that he did with Brian Nosek. Um, it would have been... Of the psychology replication thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Same yeah. thing. It would have been about 10 years ago. And I think... Um, Did they crack a million? I think at the very least it was into... The, the sample size was into the six-figure territory. Yeah, it's just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's look. This is the lovely part about being able to distribute stuff, isn't it? Yeah. This is, uh, you know, for all the criticism that you can you can bring to something like that. This is a good example of something where you will eventually aggregate uh, a better a better result over time. It doesn't. So it, it almost there. comes back to the idea. It almost comes back to the idea of you know co- either collect data at a really really good quality with a small amount of people or collect a lot of data and uh you know mm. anything that's happening or or any sort of biases will just kind of wash out when you actually have these enormous numbers so there's that sort of tension between the two yeah yeah oh look this is a you know you know you know my feelings on this we do yeah. uh we do 10 people with a microscope or we uh accept the fact that things are going to go wrong and just bring the family see what you can do yeah yeah uh, that's a Curious sentiment for the research community, <laughs> isn't it? Ah, never mm. mind. I think we have to leave it there. Yeah, let's uh, wrap it up for today. Let's do that. What yeah. should we remind people to do in our newfound direction towards podcast professionalism? <laughs> people should uh, hop on iTunes and uh, rate, even leave comments mm. on. Uh, on the podcast, you can also do that on uh, on SoundCloud, on our SoundCloud account. Um, contact us on Twitter at uh, at Hertz Podcast. Uh, where else can they contact us, James? Uh, did you say the Facebook? I haven't, not say yet. Say the Facebook. We have our Facebook. Just hey. search uh, every, <laughs> <laughs> everything Hertz Podcast. Like us so you can keep up to date. Um, and we'll all, that's where we're also going to post um, any stuff that we were specifically talking about uh, during the episodes. Yep, that is a, we we will in fact aggregate that. Well, you will. <laughs> <laughs> well, all the best. That's all from us. Bye for now. <laughs>